Hey, deserving listeners, I thought I would answer patron emails. This first email is from an anonymous patron. They write, I have some questions about the psychology of viral videos of people being racist and aggressive, like Amy Cooper, Karens, etc. Do you think some people, do you think some of the people in these videos could be suffering from psychosis of some kind? It seems so illogical to be so blatantly racist and hostile when you know you're being filmed and that the video could be posted online. Also, can we learn anything about systems from how bystanders in the video act? End of email. So first off, I don't like the term Karens. I think it's denigrating to actual good, nice people who are named Karen. I think we can just call them uh, racist boomer ladies or something. Like, I don't think we need to call them Karens. I I don't actually like that term at all because I know people named Karen and they're wonderful, nice people. And imagine if your name became associated with something as horrible as what Karens are being associated with. If you don't know, it's sort of a Reddit thing. Anyway, so then uh, you ask, you know, could some of these people be suffering from psychosis of some kind? Absolutely. That's, this is one of the things that I will frequently think. There's no way to tell. Sometimes some videos seem more like a psychotic behavior, meaning that it comes from a place of psychosis. If you have a delusional disorder of some kind, a thought disorder of some kind, it is common to have persecutory thoughts, meaning that you think people are out to get you. Uh, and sometimes those people can be a particular race of person. Sometimes people who have schizophrenia will believe the FBI is out to get them or aliens are about to get them or black people are out to get them. These are largely culturally based. It's not like we're born with the idea of the FBI or the fact that black people are scary. So they're often... Uh, they have, these delusions get latched onto certain cultural notions like racism. So it's not like the person isn't necessarily affected by racism. But, but yeah, I mean, uh, I've, with these, vid- these viral videos, someone will be in a parking lot and they'll be filming someone just going off like it's a, a person of color that is filming. And so what happens, for, if you're not familiar, these viral videos that are on YouTube and Reddit and TikTok and things is uh, someone will be in the parking lot. There'll be a an altercation, a verbal altercation of some kind, and then this uh, white person, usually older, and she might start just yelling r- racial uh, things at the person. And then the person pulls out their phone and starts filming this this older white person uh, being racist. And I suspect that a good number of them are not delusional. I imagine most of them are not because it's not unheard of to have this sort of behavior. But I suspect that some are. So, and there's no way for anyone to know that based on what's happening, right? The the person filming wouldn't know, oh, that person is suffering from schizophrenia right now. And I should forgive them of their ranting and raving because – one minute it's ranting about people of color and the next minute it's ranting about the CIA and the next minute it's ranting about, you know, some other thing that is a result of delusions. There's no way for them to know it. There's no way for the internet to know it. The only way to know it would be if a family member came forward and said, by the way, the person that you are making fun of suffers from a psychotic disorder. And by the time someone came forward, I'm sure the internet would have moved on anyway. Now, this isn't to say that we shouldn't out people for being racist. Uh, 
um, what it illuminates maybe a larger point, which is that we have a problem with racism. And those people uh, – now, the morality of posting their uh, picture online and their name online is actually pretty nuanced because some people take it really far. Like they'll dox someone or they'll identify them and um, go after them. And, and you know, it's, it's hard to know what the right thing to do is. And I'm a therapist, so I don't really know the right answer to that. But we also have a problem with a lack of awareness for mental illness and of getting help to people who need it. There are massive crowds of people in our you know, very wealthy United States, but around the world, who are suffering from things like schizophrenia and are not getting any kind of support or any kind of help because we just don't allocate the uh, tax dollars to fund these kinds of programs. So, um, so the answer is, do I think some of the people in the videos are suffering from psychosis? Uh, yeah, um, I often will uh, wonder about that. There's no way to tell usually. but And then you say that it seems so illogical to, blatant, to be so blatantly racist and hostile when you know you're being filmed. Now, from you and my perspective, yours and my perspective, yeah, it seems so illogical. Why would you use the N-word? in you know public while you're being filmed well one if you're not psychotic one people come from extremely racist cultural pockets where they believe they are a hundred percent justified that's one the other thing that i'll say that's just popped into my head what that i often think more often than psychosis is ptsd a lot of people are walking around with ptsd uh, untreated and or even treated, but the point is, is that they haven't recovered yet. And when they are triggered, then all bets are off. Like if you if you have PTSD out there and you have one of your defense, so so when we experience a threat, we have fight, flight, freeze, or appease, right? So right there in the description is fight, flight. So the first one is fight, and for some of us, when we are attacked or threatened or someone is getting in our face or something then we come out swinging and when you have when you're on a scale let's say there's a scale from one to ten with distress being high at the high end to ten so ten is being highly distressed there are people who can go from one to nine within half a second because of their ptsd and when you're on a nine of the distress scale and the fight or flight freeze or appease kicks in and your tendency is to fight then you might see red and do things and say things that you would never do otherwise. There's also the possibility that some of these people are intoxicated. It doesn't justify it by any means. I mean, I've been intoxicated and I've never said those kinds of things. So it's not like intoxication causes one to say the N-word repeatedly. But I do wonder about how many of these people are suffering from trauma. I've seen enough of these videos that, are, that go beyond Amy, the Amy Coopers of the world and go towards uh, just people who are having a public freakout. There's actually a subreddit called Public Freakout. And sometimes I wonder how many of these people are suffering from PTSD. I'm not going to say it justifies the reaction, but I am going to say that uh, once those people calm down, if I could talk to them, would they tell me that they suffer from trauma and there was something about the interaction that triggered them and they just went off? And they didn't really have any control over their behavior. Um, So that's another thing that comes to mind.
The other thing you ask is, can we learn anything about systems from how bystanders in the videos react? And I love this question because anonymous patron, you're asking about systems theory, which is just fantastic. I don't know the answer to that question, though. <laughs> Let me think about it for a second. So it's possible to look at it from a number of different angles. One, you, you always, when you're looking at a system, you want to look at the different components of the system, like the system of a cell. You want to look at mitochondria and DNA and the cellular wall and RNA and all ATP, all this stuff. I'm, I think I'm speaking biology. I'm not sure. But when, when you look at this system, we have the person – Amy, the Amy Coopers of the world who are ranting and raving and being very racist while they know they're being filmed in broad daylight. Then you have the person filming who is in, in experiencing the victimization and plans on outing this person on the internet. Then we have us, the viewers, who are viewing this video later on. So this is one way to look at it is it's a triangulation so it starts out with a – and triangulation is a systemic uh, idea. So you have a conflict between two people, Amy Cooper and the fellow who was, I believe, birdwatching. <laughs> and you have these two people who are in conflict. And the fellow who was birdwatching films it and drags us into the conflict, triangulates us as the viewing public into their conflict. And now the anxiety – has transferred from between Amy Cooper and the birdwatching fella to now between us and Amy Cooper. And is the triangulation functional? Does it actually work to address the uh, conflict? I would say kind of, in a sense, because as a society, we are condemning Amy Cooper and her behavior. I believe she lost her job. If you're not familiar with the story, it's that a viral video that was going around where she was in the park walking her dog. And uh, you just have to, if you haven't seen the video, it is, it is something to behold <laughs> because she, for one is just yanking her dog by the collar in a very unsettling manner. And she's on the phone with nine one one. Well, actually, so the other element to this is nine one one, the nine one one phone operator. So she's calling 911 and she's saying, I'm being attacked by a black man. He, he's going he's gonna to do something to me. And it's clear that the fellow who's birdwatching is not doing anything. He's yards away from her and is, is laughing as he's filming. He's like, oh, okay, ma'am. I don't know what you're talking about. And she is putting on this huge act as she's calling 911 saying, I'm being attacked by a black man. Come now. Come now. It's, it is – like she's parroting a racist person. So uh, so the 911 operator is also being asked to participate in the triangle, which is a frequent thing that uh, people in conflict will do, is they will both individually uh, try to triangulate a third. And so if, – but if we looked at the broader system in, in light of my discussion with the George Floyd uh, protests and then the riots – we might be able to look at this, and it's really just a philosophical choice to do so because there's no hard science to this, is that as a society, we have people who have outmoded ideas about race and outmoded ideas of who, are, who is threatening and outmoded ideas of their own privilege and their own entitlement. Uh, 
based on culture. Then you have people who are being victimized. This fellow who was birdwatching. Then you have a society who is collectively examining, uh, shall we say white society, because it's not like BIPOC people have need to examine this as, as much. But you have a, a whole sea of white Americans who have limited understanding of their own privilege and limited understanding of the different world in which BIPOC people and white people live in. And by posting these videos, it causes the because for me as as a one as a person of color who has experienced things like this but also as someone who studies this as a you know therapist and a professor for the past 25 years when i see videos like this there's nothing surprising about it at all to me if anything things have gotten a lot better probably because people are filming these sorts of things so these sorts of things have been going on uh you know since the beginning of our nation so it's it's not surprising to me when I see this sort of thing. Um, I've had people react to me in that way. Um, so it's uh, so, but there are a lot of people. So, but I'm not saying I'm not saying I'm better than other people. I'm just saying it's literally my job to study this sort of thing, to read about it, to to listen to people, to train people in this way. And so, so I'm not necessarily the target audience for this thing. But there's a whole sea of people who have limited understanding, and as as they see these videos they start to see what BIPOC people are experiencing, uh, meaning black, indigenous, people of color. And these, you know, ignorant people are viewing this video <clears throat> and saying like, whoa, that's what black people have to deal with in our country? That's insanity. And if he wasn't filming and the police showed up, that guy would have been hauled to, you know, he would have been arrested and tackled and tased. And because I'm pretty sure in our society, if you have a hysterical white woman screaming in to the phone saying this black man is attacking me, you're going to get a lot of cops, guns drawn. And they're, you know, it comes down to believing the professional white woman uh, and the black man, I'm pretty sure the black man's going to get the short end of that stick. And so people are watching this video and saying like, whoa. So so now we have this this anxiety that is that was once sort of privately experienced by BIPOC people. And now the the populace of the United States is being triangulated into this, I think rightfully so, because these videos are going viral. And now as a system, we have an opportunity to try to use that triangle in a way that can actually elevate and really resolve those conflicts. Now, if we were to um, – so let's, let's bring it down to a smaller triangle with three people. So let's say that um, – let's say that instead of filming, you just happened upon these two people. And, well, let's make it more normal. A regular common situation. So let's say that you have um, you have two friends, and they are in conflict. And one of your friends, so there's there's Jane and there's John. And John comes to you and says, you know, Jane is is uh, being really unfair with me all the time. And so you're being pulled in to to the triangle. So there's a lot of different things you can do in that situation. 
One is you can say to John, yeah, you know, Jane sucks. Jane's terrible. I hate Jane. Jane is, Jane's a jerk. Uh, I agree with you. Well, usually that kind of triangulation doesn't help to alleviate the original conflict. The other thing you can do is to tell John like, hey, Jane's a nice person. What's wrong with you, John? You're essentially taking sides to say you either take Jane's side or you take John's side. Usually, uh, not always, it depends, but usually a triangulation that actually helps is to actually help resolve the conflict. So you maybe you tell John, well, okay, I get it that you're upset, but you know, did you think that Jane might be doing this because of this? Or maybe you go to Jane and you go like, you know, John, you kind of hurt his feelings the other day and he told me about it and you know, I just wanted to ask what was going on there. So if we're going to look at this from a systems point of view, usually, and it's hard to say because systems operate the way that they operate and there's no it's no way to predict. It's like trying to predict the weather. Usually the way to actually – so you know, the, the object of the game is to actually solve the problem. Well, what's the problem with the Amy Coopers and the, you know, the BIPOC people in the park looking at birds? Well, we have a problem with racism. We have a problem of a history of racism. We have a problem of, of ideas of white supremacy being propagated. And when I say white supremacy, some of you might think, oh, like the KKK. Yes, like the KKK, but really everyone. We have a problem of white supremacy throughout our culture that isn't just relegated to the obvious neo-Nazis of the world, that this notion that white people are better, white supremacy. And we have a problem with that. And it's unfair. And what it does is it limits certain people's ability to life, liberty, and happiness. So that's our problem. Well, when someone films these things and, and you know, puts it out there, we're being triangulated into that problem. We uh, could live in ignorance before these videos came out and say like, well, you know, I'm sure it's not happening. But these, these videos say, no, you are now involved because you saw it and now what are you going to do? Well, a common reaction is to go to the Amy Coopers of the world and the quote-unquote Karens of the world and say, evil people, terrible people, discount them, cancel them, hate them, fire them, you know, blame them, instead of looking at, we have a system of white supremacy. We have a culture of, of racism in addition to sexism and ableism and everything else. And until we stop uh, and look around to everything that's happening, which I think people are starting to do in a very twist of events that I did not see happening even in my lifetime, uh, particularly uh, you know in recent years, I've, I've given up on society in this way. Until we actually zoom out and look at society in a systemic way, look at policing, look at politics, look at our idea of policing, look at our idea of racism, look at our idea of crime, our idea of men and black men and, and BIPOC people. Uh, until we uh, actually examine that very critically, we're not actually going to change anything. Now, canceling the Amy Coopers of the world, you know, it, some would argue, and I might as well, is fair and is just for sure. But at the same time, there's something systemically wrong with our society. 
So it can't just end with canceling those people and calling people Karens. <laughs> That's just not going to solve the ultimate problem. What it what it might do is cause a couple a few people to uh, get more angry. It might cause some people to what what it often does. To be uh, perfectly honest, is that so? Let me draw a profile, and I'm sorry if this is offensive to some people. So we have a you know of limited awareness white person. We'll say that he's 30 years old, and he didn't grow up with a lot of diverse you know ethnicities in his life. He he maybe had a Asian friend and maybe a a black acquaintance, but you know he didn't really have a lot of awareness. He like he thinks of himself as a nice guy. He thinks of himself as a socially just person, but you know he's just not that aware. Well, he sees this video of Amy Cooper going off on the on the um, person in the park, and he you know he comments on Reddit or he talks about it at work. Did you see this Amy Cooper? Uh, she got fired from her job. She deserves it, you know. And you, you know you get upset. Um, but if what that does for a lot of people, because there's a lot of white guilt and there's a lot of white shame for the privilege that they have. If you have any kind of awareness, you should feel bad about your privilege. Any kind of privilege you have. I have male privilege shame. I have male privilege guilt. Absolutely. Now, it, it shouldn't end there. You shouldn't just be like, I'm a terrible person because I have, I have privilege. But the point is, is that a lot of people are walking around. A lot of white people are walking around with this guilt of like, um, you know, I'm pretty sure sh- I have, a, I have a, enough of an understanding to know that I have a lot of guilt about this. Um, and I don't know what to do about it. What am I supposed to do about it? I don't want to lose my privilege, <laughs> is what some people will think. Anyway, okay, so this guy, and, you know, he's one particular, I'm not condemning all white people, but he, he sees this video and he gets upset and he posts about it and he posts on Facebook or Instagram and he talks with his friends. And then he walks away feeling like he did something. He did one for racism. He got upset. He had the right attitude. He had the right post. He got some comments and some, you know, some thumbs up from others that he did the right thing by condemning Amy Cooper and hating this woman. And then you move on with your life and you don't actually change the, the broader picture of one's racism, the broader picture of one's entitlement and privilege, the broader picture of systems of power and voting for politicians that actually address systems of power that have been unjust for literally centuries. So that's part of the issue here is that if we just react and we don't and we don't zoom out, we're at risk of at the very least uh, barely moving the arc of history towards justice. Instead of actually saying, okay, why would someone like Amy Cooper and the quote-unquote Karens out there, why would they feel so justified in saying the things that they're saying? Why do they feel like it's so justified that they actually don't mind being filmed in that moment? Again, is it psychosis? Is it PTSD? But for the people who aren't suffering from something, why do they feel so justified even though they're being filmed? That's a very good question, anonymous, anonymous patron. Why? Did they emerge from the womb with that notion? No. 
they were taught that. Were they taught that explicitly? No. They were taught that implicitly, sometimes explicitly, but more implicitly through our collective culture. It is a social construction that white people are superior. It is a social construction that BIPOC people are dangerous. It is a social construction that we have constructed ourselves as a collective that black people don't deserve uh, the things that white people deserve. It's uh, We have constructed a system that everyone understands that when the cops roll up and there are two people in an altercation, a white woman and a black man, we all understand that the black man is guilty until proven innocent and the white woman is innocent until proven guilty. Not every time, of course. There are plenty of anecdotes of white women being treated like they're guilty when they were innocent. I know I have, I have, a, I have a friend actually who was uh, brutally slammed into the ground and had to have uh, reconstructive surgery on her face. She was a white woman and uh, by a police officer for, for something like jaywalking or something. It was something absurd. But So it's not like white people can't be harmed. But on average, there is clear data demonstrating that on average – BIPOC people, particularly black people, particularly indigenous people, are being treated extremely unfairly. Okay, so that was just a rant. Uh, I didn't have any notes. I was just reading your email. I don't know how well I put that argument together. Let's take a break. When we get back, let's read some more emails. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast, please do so now. Go to patreon.com, become a patron. Also, join us on YouTube Live on Thursdays at 2 o'clock Seattle time. If you're uh, a part of that, you already know about it, but some of you don't. Some of you only listen to the podcast on your phones, and you don't know that on YouTube I do Q&As at 2 o'clock on Thursday, Seattle time. Also, know that on August 8th, I believe... We are doing a 12-hour podcast on YouTube to celebrate our 12th year anniversary doing this podcast. So you can join us for part of it or all of it or whatever. We're going to give out prizes and do trivia and all sorts of fun stuff. All right. This next uh, is not an email. It was actually a comment on YouTube Live asking, could you speak a bit about the stereotypical link between CEOs and psychopathic behavior? Is there... Is there science around the link, and do you have theories about it? End of comment. Yeah, so there's this notion out there that maybe you're aware of, maybe you're not, that most CEOs or a good percentage of CEOs, people who are at the top of the chain in an organization like Starbucks or something, that uh, most or a good percentage of these people are psychopaths. And uh, you probably have absorbed that headline, that notion. So what's the science? Well, I'm here to tell you that this is a ridiculous notion. Uh, so what the, let's see, what, how detailed do I want to get? Okay, so there is one study that found that 20% of CEOs are quote-unquote psychopathic. But what did this study actually define psychopath as? So there's a problem with the word psychopath in that it gets used in various different ways. 
For example, it's used in the classic way that a lot of people understand, which is the Ted Bundys of the world, the Charlie Mansons of the world, people who don't have any care for human life or for humans. They don't care about using other people for their own gain. They don't have any empathy. They are, you know, criminals usually or con artists. They manipulate people. They're Machiavellian. They're narcissistic. They are just very difficult to be around. The classic psychopath. So that's one definition. That's the, the hair definition, if you will, the psychologist by the name of Hare, researcher, Canadian, I believe. And uh, so there's that. Now, psychopathy is not in the DSM. If something is in the DSM, then we typically revolve our definition around what's in the DSM. But we don't have psychopathy in the DSM. So authors can kind of use it in a variety of ways. And the term has been used in a variety of ways for decades, if not 100 years. So we have so many different definitions. Okay. Another definition of psychopath that we use in the clinical literature and in assessment procedures and protocols is a much blander version. So for the MMPI-2, by the way, which is, um, for example, which is the most commonly used personality assessment that uh, psychologists will use. This is a, a measure that it takes a, takes a few hours to fill out as a person when that's you know being evaluated. And you have to use computers to tabulate everything. And anyway, but one of the things that it spits out as a result, you don't have to use computers. There's actually a way to do it by hand, which is uh, tedious and boring. But anyway, so the, uh, the MMPI-2 will spit out uh, so it has nine different scales. It's been a while since I've done it. Nine or 10 different scales. And one of the scales that spits out is psychopathic deviant scale. So this is a measure of, quote unquote, how psychopathic you are. Well, uh, therapists, including myself and including Umberto, will actually score kind of high on the psychopathic deviant scale. But what do they mean by psychopathic deviant? Because I'm not a psychopath, but I am according to the MMPI-2. What they mean in personality assessment, psychopathic deviant, it could be the Ted Bundys of the world, because it will capture those people, but it casts a much wider net to include people who have tremendous empathy, but don't really care about conforming to rules and society. So they, they don't mind breaking the law. Like if no one's looking, they'll run a red light. Or when they were younger, they might have shoplift, shoplifted more than other people. They might kind of fudge on their taxes a little bit more likely. Now, I will say for the record, I don't fudge on my taxes and I don't ride red lights. <laughs> but uh, as, as someone who tests high on psychopaths, so, so some of the items that might uh, cause you to rate higher on the psychopathic deviant scale might be a question like, do you, do you, do you think of yourself as a conformer or as a free thinker? So I would think of myself as a free thinker. And so would Umberto. And so thus that's one tick in the column of psychopathic deviant. Another one might be if, if no one's looking, if you come to a stop sign or a stoplight and no one's looking, and no one's there, is it okay to run that stoplight? 
Or would you think it's okay to run that stoplight? Yeah, I'd say yeah, because the laws are only there to protect us. They're not there to just control our behavior. They're, and if no one's around and you're not going to get in a car accident, then yeah, go ahead and run that red light. Because why not? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not a big deal. That would, be an, that would be a tick in the column of psychopathic deviant. Now, other things that'll be a tick in that column will be, do you use people for your own gain? Do you lack empathy? Do you frequently think about how you're going to screw other people over? Um, These are other aspects of what we would call this broad net of, of psychopaths. So this all comes back to the CEO thing. The study that found that 20% of CEOs are quote-unquote psychopathic, it is including uh, that broader net, which of course makes a lot of sense. To rise to the level of a CEO, you have to be a very free thinker, usually. To be a conformist usually means you don't stick out. Um, It also means that you might not try to move forward the way other people would. So that's what that study is looking at. But of course, that's not the way it's reported. What's reported is, you know, 20% or most CEOs are, are psychopaths. But what, so what does the data show when we actually limit ourselves to the hair document, uh, the hair definition of psychopath, which is what most people think of when they think of psychopath? Well, what we find is that 3% of CEOs are psychopaths. That's very few CEOs. Now, it's a lot higher rate than the general population, which is about 1%. So there's a, if you're a CEO, you're three times more likely to be a psychopath than if you are not a CEO. <laughs> that sounds like a lot. But again, when you look at the numbers, that's 3%. Now, there's various different studies looking at various different things. But from my memory, anyway, that's, that's the figure. So please, for the love of God, people out there, Get it out of your head that CEOs are psychopaths. There's a higher rate of CEOs being psychopaths, but it's still extremely low. So think of the Jeff Bezos of the world, the um, uh, what's his face from Tesla. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's frequently, oh, well, they're all psychopaths. Well, according to averages, they have a 3% likelihood of being a psychopath. And they could be. But the mailman can be a psychopath. You could be a psychopath. (laughs) Um, It's just that uh, psychopaths, or it's just that CEOs are uh, more likely, but still very unlikely in the bigger picture. Anyway, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from anonymous patron. They write, how do you reparent yourself when you can't afford therapy? Is it even possible doing it yourself? End of email. So, or uh, there's a little bit more that I'll read later. But so they're asking, she's asking, how do you reparent yourself? And that's referring to having cor- essentially the way I might phrase it is how, how do you have corrective attachment experiences outside of therapy? Because usually therapy is the best way to do that. And can you do it yourself? Yeah, the answer is yes, absolutely. I mean, what did people do before there was therapy? Well, the things that you can do is have earned security. So you, you want to have secure relationships with people. Now, a therapist, if they're trained right, 
knows how to engineer that relationship so it can be a corrective attachment experience for you. The general public isn't usually as aware of that. And so even if you find someone who can give you that secure attachment, they might not know how to do it well enough for you. Or it might be so slow that it takes a long time for it to really sink in. Therapy can be very accelerated because it can be very uh, focused on transference, countertransference. But you can absolutely do that. You can, if you have a relative or a friend or a spouse or an animal that you really bond with, these can be corrective attachment experiences. For example, if you were traumatized uh, and made to feel worthless and you have a dog and every time you come home from work, the dog's there loving you and wants to be with you and doesn't want to be with anyone else, that's a corrective experience or it very, very well can be. So you can have corrective attachment experiences with non-therapists, absolutely. And a good therapy will involve that recommendation. Like, okay, who else are you having corrective attachment experiences with besides me as the therapist? And you even ask, can you, is it even possible doing it by yourself? And that answer is also true. You can do it by yourself. You don't need to have other people to have corrective atta- attachment experiences because we as complex thinkers, as humans, we can imagine, we can see ourselves, right? We can be conscious of our own selves or parts of ourselves. So let's say that uh, inside of you is a very hurt, scared little girl. And you, as you now, take care of that hurt, little, scared girl. And you tell that scared girl that she is uh, justified in being scared, but that you're here to help her. Well, that can also be a corrective attachment experience. That's just you talking to you. So yeah, there's a lot of things you can do. And you're, you know, emailing from a place where I think uh, it's hard to get therapy or even hard to get a therapist that even does this kind of work. So yeah, earn security. Um, absolutely. It's harder to do. And if you suffer from any kind of other condition, like say you have a personality disorder intermixed in there, it can be really hard to do this kind of thing because your defenses might push people away and might make it really hard to engineer uh, corrective attachment experiences with, with people who don't really understand why you're reacting the way that you do. When, for example, when someone comes to me with histrionic or borderline or narcissistic, they have tried to have secure relationships in their life, but have had a really hard time with that. And it takes someone like me who really understands personality disorders and can interpret their behavior accurately uh, to actually have a relationship that sustains beyond the first few phases. But it absolutely can be done, and you didn't mention anything about those complications. I want to go on with your email here because it it just uh, breaks my heart and also is is a little funny cut comedic you say if you don't mind me sharing something with you i live in indonesia so the live q a questions on youtube are the oddest hour for me when it's 2 p.m in seattle it's 4 a.m where i live and i actually set my alarm so that i can wake up early in the morning and watch the q a on youtube I typed my questions, the same as here, uh, but I fell back to sleep with your voice in the background. (laughs) 
I dreamt of you and your wife being temporarily stationed in my city, and I went to find you and begged you and your wife to reparent me. I was telling both of you that I could cook, clean, and do laundry in payment. That's the part that really breaks my heart. Both of you accepted, and I was happy until I got yelled at and accused of stealing things from you. I was so scared, and I ran away. I'm not accusing you and your wife of this behavior, and I think both of you are one of the loveliest people uh, on earth. It's just hilarious how I desperately want to have a healthy parents or even the support of a good therapist like you that I dreamt of you. I hope you don't get offended by me sharing this. I thought it's funny. I thought it was a funny story to share. Yeah, it's a very funny story to share, but it also just breaks my heart. I mean, to think about you in Indonesia, setting your alarm at 4 a.m. so you can listen to me yammer. And by the way, the, you know, the, the live sessions are recorded usually. I usually leave them up for at least a day. But you actually wanted to ask me a question. Well, you got the question through to me. <laughs> And hopefully my voice didn't put you to sleep. <laughs> but the part that just breaks my heart is you beg me and my wife to reparent you and you say that you'll cook clean and do laundry in payment. I mean, oh, that is just heartbreaking that, uh, I mean, I'm not going to turn that down necessarily. <laughs> I'm just joking. Um, depending on how well you cook, because I love food. Um, I don't necessarily need people to clean or do the laundry. I actually don't mind doing my own laundry. But anyway, um, the yeah, it just breaks my heart that uh, you are in need and deserve to have a secure attachment with a therapist, and you can't afford it. It is just a crime on humanity that we live in a world that that is true. It's just... It's just terrible. And I'm sure that if someone ran the numbers, if we reallocated all of our money from war and over-policing or whatever, we could pay for everyone to go to therapy. Uh, I don't know if that's true, but at least open the door for a lot of people. And yet, here we are, where someone is uh, dreaming about a therapist that lives halfway across the world and begging them in their dream to give them the therapy that they deserve. It's just heartbreaking. And if you have a heart, and I know you do because you listen to this podcast, please raise awareness of this. Vote for it. If you live in the United States, vote for politicians who are aware of the injustices that happen in other countries. I mean, it's really bizarre how narrowly focused our care of other humans are, at least in the United States. We care about us. Well, what about everyone else? You cross the border instantly, don't care. All those people can suffer. I don't even know what's happening across the border, particularly around the world. Yeah, who cares? Let's just focus on, on us. It's just a terrible, terrible, immoral way to live. And I don't know the answer to it, of course, but I'm just really sorry you're going through that. Now, there are people in the United States that are uh, identifying with you that they, too, can't afford therapy or don't have access to the right sort of therapy. It's a, it's a terrible state of affairs, just terrible. But to answer your question, yes, you can have corrective attachment experiences with significant people in your life if you engineer them right. You also have to interpret it well, which is something that I, as a therapist, often will work with people on, meaning that 
if you have relational traumas and you go into a secure relationship, you might distrust it even though it's not justified to distrust it. And when you distrust it when it's not justified, you don't interpret it as a secure attachment because you're very suspicious and very wary. Now, I'm not saying you're supposed to trust everyone. By no means that's true. But a lot of what I do with clients who have relational traumas is helping them to see like, well, that person that they did that thing, it might not be evidence that they're not trustworthy. It might just be evidence that they were triggered in some way. So maybe if you had a different point of view about what happened with that person, maybe that would help you to, one, just sustain that relationship, and two, interpret it in a way that really is reparative. Because if your perspective is that other people suck and other people are terrible, um, any bad thing that happens between you and other people will just be like, yep, everyone's terrible. And then it's hard to have any kind of earned security because of the defenses that kick in to prevent the relationship from even developing. Anyway, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from Anonymous Patron. They write, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on polyamory being the result of attachment issues. I ask this because I consider myself a poly-friendly therapist. Many other clinicians that I talk to will tell me that polyamory is always related to attachment issues or that they or that they see it as a strong correlation. End of email. So if you're not familiar with polyamory, in short, it is having a recognition, well, so there's different aspects to it. There's the lifestyle and then there's the identity. So you can live a polyamorous lifestyle, meaning that you have... Uh, a number of romantic sexual relationships or you're involved with someone who has a number of romantic and sexual relationships going at the same time. These can be casual relationships or marriage and having kids with them. Uh, So that's a lifestyle. But you can also identify as a polyamorous person, meaning that you believe that you were born with a disposition that is geared towards polyamory as opposed to monogamy, meaning that it's really hard for you to love only one person and to live with that person the rest of your life. That for you, you want to have multiple loves going at the same time. Um, So now for those of you who don't, who aren't familiar with this uh, community, there's a pretty robust community in Seattle and it's growing around the world. It comes across to a lot of people who don't know about this. It it sounds slutty or it sounds like just a bunch of men who want to have sex with a lot of people. And it's not that at all. Uh, Polyamorous people are uh, some of the most mature, ethical, good communicator people that I've ever met. They can. They can be terrible people too. But the people I've worked with, there are certain principles in the polyamorous community that is – that are just very healthy. This notion of of being very upfront with your partners and asking for what you want and listening to each other and not forcing polyamory on anybody and trying to help everyone have the life that they want to live. Optimally, two polyamorous people will uh, meet and uh, be involved with each other. Sometimes, though, you get a monogamous person, a mon- monogamous-oriented person who is in a relationship with a polyamorous person. The polyamorous person doesn't know they're poly at first until 
they're in a long-term relationship with someone and suddenly they start saying, you know what, I really want to be involved with other people, but I also don't want to leave my current partner. I want both. And a lot of problems emerge from that because our society doesn't really support polyamory. So the people will end up cheating or maybe even breaking up the relationship when a polyamory solution might have actually really solved the problem. So that's it in a nutshell. I could go on and on. But the point is, is that you're a poly-friendly therapist and you're talking to other clinicians who are saying that polyamory is always related to attachment issues or are strong correlations of it. That is not supported by the science and it's absurd on its face. It's like saying that gay people have attachment issues or trans all trans people have some kind of pathology that causes them to be trans or that asexual people are all uh, you know trauma survivors and that's why they're asexual it's clear from the data that some people are are just asexual because that's how they are and some people are polyamorous just like some people just happen to be heterosexual and some people happen to be monogamous oriented we don't pathologize when someone wants to be monogamous, do we? Well, why would we pathologize polyamory? Uh, there, it, the science doesn't show that it's related to any um, kind of dysfunction. It just is what it is. And it kind of makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint that some people would be into monogamy and some people wouldn't. Plus, when you look at, we actually, me and Umberto did a whole deep dive on our humans' monogamist or or not uh, we looked at all the or I I looked at all the data and presented it to Umberto and there's just so much data out there that basically seems to suggest that it's complicated (laughs) Um, it's unknown how oriented we are naturally as a species whether it's towards monogamy or non-monogamy And there's so many different types of non-monogamy, right? You can have uh, a serial, you could have like five significant relationships that last 10 years each, or you can have five relationships that are going on at the same time. Anyway, but the notion that therapists out there don't understand polyamory, that doesn't surprise me because most people don't understand polyamory and therapy emerges from our culture. It's also, it's also threatening to people. It, it, I will say for for me, when I first heard of polyamory, it was one of our very first podcast episodes was actually about polyamory. I had some very renowned people on the podcast, Alina Gabosh, who is a um, very famous person in the polyamory world in Seattle and around the world. She was on my podcast to talk about polyamory. And um, in that episode, I was still pretty ignorant of the data and of the the life and and of the experience of polyamory. And so even though I was a therapist for 10 years at that point, I I didn't really know about polyamory. So it's not surprising to me that therapists wouldn't really understand polyamory. It's one of the the next things that we need to tackle as a field and as a culture. We have brought lesbian people uh, to awareness and destigmatization and non-pathologizing of gay people, bi people, trans people. And we have to start looking at asexual people and polyamorous people and 
starting to liberate them as well. So, uh, but we have yet to really do that. I suspect we will in the next 10 or 20 years. So, yeah. Now, can polyamory be used for bad things? Yeah, but monogamy can be used for bad things. So the question is, you know, is polyamory related to attachment issues? Like I said, no. Can someone with polyamory have attachment issues? Can, can someone who identifies as polyamorous have attachment issues? Yeah. Most people have attachment issues in my experience. So that's what I'll say about that. Let's go on to another email. All right. This email is from an anonymous patron. She writes, I've heard you mention in some of your podcast episodes that one cannot help their feelings, meaning that you feel what you feel about other people in romantic uh, cases, and there isn't much that you can do about it. So if I always develop strong feelings for avoidant and narcissistic men who I know are bad for me, what can I do to stop crushing on such people when I believe it is because of who raised me? I don't want to keep falling in love with people who are emotionally unavailable and who exhibit red flags for future heartbreak and turmoil. End of email. So this is a very common question that I get, and it's actually something of a problem in my field. I actually was talking with someone recently that was providing a training that was very much in line with the narrative that you have right here. So what is that narrative? Well, that narrative it, that a lot of people have is, and, and if you actually watch my reaction videos on YouTube, I don't know if you do, but Darcy actually exhibits this narrative of, why do I keep choosing these horrible, narcissistic, terrible men to fall in love with? I need to pick a better man because I deserve that. Well, what that denies is the systemic point of view, which is that, yeah, the other person that you were involved with had some personality problems, but you probably have personality problems too. And the way that your personality problems came together created the heartbreak and turmoil for both people. There's this narrative that goes, so that's my narrative. It's not always true, of course, because I'd have to do case-by-case basis, but a lot of people are walking around with this narrative that all of their past boyfriends or girlfriends were these terrible human beings, psycho, narcissistic, you know, avoidant, borderline, crazy, into themselves, self-centered. And although you could make a case for that, it's also very possible that you had issues that triggered them and they triggered you. You you simultaneously triggered each other to have your traumas touched upon such that you both came out in fight or flight, freeze or appease modes and the turmoil and the heartbreak occurred. So that's, that's one thing to look at is that, you know, so you might be thinking, so you're thinking to yourself, an honest patron, the next person I have a crush on is likely to be an avoidant narcissistic man who resembles my father. And I'm, I want to be with him, but I see so many red flags and I've been down this road so many times you know, how do I stop being attracted to these terrible men? Well, that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is you're attracted to who you're attracted to. And once you get involved with these men, how do you prevent the two of you triggering each other's traumas? 
because you know that avoidant and narcissistic people got that way because of traumas. And you know, you also know that the reason why you're attracted to these people is because of your relational trauma. So you're both two relationally traumatized people that are extremely likely to trigger each other, which is extremely likely to result in fight or flight, freeze or appease, which is extremely and unchecked and unhelped by a couple's therapist or an individual therapist is very likely to spin out of control. So that's one thing. And I see a lot of people on the internet talking about the more simple, I think, destructive question of how do you avoid narcissistic men? When really the question should be, once you start to see narcissism in your partner, what are you doing as a couple to stop triggering each other? How are you going to stop triggering him to be narcissistic? And how is he going to stop triggering you to do whatever it is that you're doing? Now, I don't want to blame the victim here. It's very possible that you, anonymous patron, have been in abusive relationships in the past where these men have done deplorable things to you that have nothing to do with what you did, or at the very least is completely unjustified. So I don't know what you're talking. I don't know the range of things we're talking about, but that's just another thing to think about. If you're aware of my reaction videos to Darcy on 90 day fiance with, with uh, Jesse, Jesse and Tom both seemed to love her. It's hard to know. These are reality TV shows. Uh, and with Jesse, uh, they both had relational traumas, as far as I could tell. Toms were less uh, noticeable, but it was pretty clear to me that they were that they were all triggering each other. Anyway, I won't go into it because many of you listeners don't watch that show. But so, what are the other things you can do? Well, number one is awareness: is become aware of your own relational traumas and how they manifest. So that will help, uh, and usually that requires a lot of therapy. The other thing to do is to heal. So the more you heal, anonymous patron, from your relational traumas growing up with your avoidant and narcissistic family member, the more likely you are to not be attracted to these sorts of people. Maybe. <laughs> but that's often what happens. The other question to ask yourself in the awareness camp is, when you're attracted to avoidant narcissistic men as you're identifying them, what need do you think you're trying to fulfill with these sorts of men? Because in all likelihood, there's something about them that represents a fulfillment of some need. And just shooting in the dark because I don't know you, but a woman who's attracted to an avoidant and narcissistic man might have low self-esteem and might be looking for a partner who has high self-esteem, someone that they can kind of lean on, someone they can depend on, an avoidant, strong-seeming, uh, independent, narcissistic man who you know, doesn't question, doesn't second-guess what they're doing, whereas I feel very meek and weak and sad and pathetic, and I need someone like that to depend on because... I feel unsafe and incompetent a lot of the times. And I, I just really want someone to, to, I, that I can go to that will be there and be strong. And, and I feel very needy and I don't want to be with someone who's very needy because you can't have two needy people in a relationship. Wh whatever it is, 
that you're saying to yourself. And it could be subconscious, it could be conscious. So that's another angle of looking at your awareness. What is it about these, as you call them, avoidant narcissistic men, what is it about them that is attractive to you? Because it's not sexually attractive. It's not like, ooh, narcissistic men, you know, uh, I'm, I'm sexually turned on. It, when we're romantically attracted to someone, we have a lot of needs that get poured into that. A lot of our needs, a lot of our unmet needs get poured into this, the, the vision or the, the crush, the, uh, you know, what it, what it could represent to you. And if you know what that need is, then maybe that points to certain schemas that if you were to really challenge in your own mind and heal from, then you also wouldn't be attracted or have crushes on these sorts of people anymore. Hard to say, but I've seen it happen. I have seen people who have a pattern of being attracted to quote unquote destructive people. They do their healing and as they emerge, and that can take years, and as they emerge from that healing process, they suddenly have a completely different radar when it comes to who they're romantically attracted to. And the same person that they were attracted to at the age of 22, they would never be attracted to at the age of 35, having gone through a lot of therapy. I've seen that happen. It works. I don't know if it'll work for you, an honest patron, but I've seen it work. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle, in which I answer a bunch of questions. It was all over the map. Let me know what you think. Go to the Psychology in Seattle podcast, click on the Contact Us page, and you can email me directly there. Um, Also, I've been getting a lot of emails lately, so I might not be able to, I probably won't be able to get to everyone's emailed questions. I am sorry about that. It bums me out. For the people that I know kind of well, sort of the super fans, if you will, I'm much more likely to um, sort of bump your question up by the way, (laughs) because it's all about those relationships. Honestly, if I had it my way, I would have 10,000 hours in a week and I would be able to answer everyone's questions and I would be able to do every single deep dive I want to do and every single reaction video I want to do. <laughs> it, it really is one of those things that bums me out when I think about it, it's like, well, I'm 49. You know, I, how many years do I have left on the planet? God damn it. I'm not going to be able to do everything I want to do with this podcast by the time I die. <laughs> now, some of you might be thinking, well... Kirk, you put out like several episodes a week and da da da, like slow down. Well, I get it, but this is me. Like I, I, I love doing this kind of thing, and I learn so much when I investigate and research, and it's just very gratifying to me. So, um, anyway, point is, is that go ahead and email me. I'm not sure if I'm going to be answer. I'm I'm going to be able to answer your questions. What's the final word today? Well, the final word is we're heading back into a coronavirus uptick and things are locking down again and politics and, you know, racial injustice is becoming more, people are becoming more aware of it, which is a good thing. Um, what we're, well, what do I what do I focus on in all this? What I'm going to focus on is that we've all been to some extent locked down, quarantined, 
in our homes, separated from other human beings, separated from having a good time. I just want to go to a movie theater. There's a movie theater north of me where they took out every other um, row and they put in tables. And so, and you can order drinks and you can order food. And I, me and my wife, that is our date night. We go to Cinnabar in Montlake and we have our popcorn and our pizza and my burger and fries and her margarita and my wine or whatever I'm drinking. And we watch the new blockbuster coming out and it it is just, it's just a wonderful time. And among all the other things, you know, being able to hug my mother and it looks like we're going to be in this for a lot longer and it is just a bummer, right? It is, it just sucks. And we're all in this together. Now, some people around the world are like, hey, we're, we're doing okay because the virus isn't, you know, is done spreading. And good for you. You probably live in a country that has a sane government and a sane response as a society to this sort of thing. The America does not. The United States has not had a sane response and does not have clear, strong, science-based leadership around this issue. And thus... Over 100,000 people have died from this in the United States. Anyway, the point is, is that all of us are in, have been impacted and will continue to be impacted. My university closed down until January. They just announced uh, not too long ago that the campus is going to be closed until January, maybe longer. And it's been closed since a March-ish. And that is just incredible. For me not to go to my university... I've been going to my university campus for 25 years <laughs> and now it's been three different campuses. We've moved all over the place. But anyway, the point is, is that it's such a weird world right now and it's so lonely <laughs> and I, I know many of you are suffering and I'm suffering there with you. It just sucks. And if we can't voice that suffering, then where are we, right? So I voice it, and I hear you when you voice it, and we can all voice it together, and we can all be together in this terrible, terrible time that we are denied hugging our family members and our friends, that we're denied social contact, that we're denied going to the store and just being with your community or going to church and being with your community. It's... It's just an awful, awful state of affairs. And I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, I assume there is light at the end of the tunnel, but it might be a long time from now. So I'm, I'm, I'm there with you. I'm suffering there with you. And we're all in this together. And please take care of yourself. Take care of others because you deserve it. We all deserve it. We really, really do. 